and welcome to the I Am Woman Project, where every week we have deep thought-provoking and interesting conversations with thought leaders, change instigators, rule breakers and creative minds who think differently, sparking creativity and inspiration. Our special guests on our show cover a variety of topics just for you, and they share their personal stories to inspire, motivate and empower you, our listener. The I Am Woman podcast is produced for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.catherineplano.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. This week, I'm super, super excited. We have an amazing woman for you, Terry Cole. Terry Cole is a New York-based licensed psychotherapist, relationship expert, and a founder of Real Love Revolution and Boundary Bootcamp. Her two female empowerment courses reaching women in over 25 countries. Before earning a master's degree in clinical psychotherapy from New York University and adopting a daily meditation green juice and exercise lifestyle, Terry worked as a talent agent negotiating contract for actors and supermodels, a typical type A overachiever with no balance or internal peace. Her ambition and fearless attitude fanned the must-get-to-the-top flames as she zipped across the country from Los Angeles to New York City, fueled with caffeine, nicotine and adrenaline. When it became evident that the things like money, power, sexy job that she thought would make her happy didn't. She could no longer ignore the voice in her heart asking, isn't there something more meaningful that you could be doing with your life than making supermodels richer? Happily, there was. Her mission and dharma are teaching women how to attract and sustain healthy, vibrant, real love into their lives and how to establish and maintain effective boundaries with ease and grace. Terry's strategies combine practical psychology, Eastern mindfulness, practice plus harnessing the power of intention to create sustainable positive behavioral change and true transformation. She has been featured as an expert therapist and master life coach on TEDx, The uh, Lisa Oz Show, Real Housewives, Huffington Post, Italian L, and the list goes on. It's now time to tune into this divine, beautiful soul. Enjoy. So this week, I am super excited. We have Terry Cole. Welcome to I Am Woman Project. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super psyched. I am super psyched. And I was just explaining to Terry, just for our listeners, just in case you hear a bit of a rumble, there is a storm happening in the background, but um, it's kind of settled down. So just in case, uh, you know what it is. So Terry, we always love to start with our Woman of Inspiration unique story. Tell us what has inspired you to do what you do today. Oh, a, a lot of things. I mean, my own life is really my own experience, my own evolution in therapy and 
the ways that I've healed my own wounds always seems to lead where I end up going professionally, which I think is probably true for a lot of women. Um, so I was actually a talent agent in New York and LA for years. Um, I was negotiating contracts for supermodels and feeling like that was definitely not my dharma. Um, but I was sort of chasing the wrong thing. I was very ambitious. And I kept thinking that maybe when I got to the next job or the next celebrity client or the next level of income, that I would feel the way that I wanted to feel. And then I got there in my early 30s. And I was like, oh, crap. I don't feel the way I want to feel. This is not my forever thing. So I made a decision in my um, late 20s, early 30s to actually uh, quit my fancy job, go back to school. and went got my master's at NYU, and I became a psychotherapist. Wow. That is a story. Yep. I, as you were saying it, I was, saying, I was thinking to myself, we, we teach what we must uh, learn. Quite often, oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's as you were saying. It's, it's through your own words that you are doing what you're doing today. Yeah, I also think that I was so for me my own therapeutic process. Also, so there was a parallel process going on of having this very ambitious, you know, get to the top experience in this very difficult career that everyone else on the outside thought was very sexy and shiny and amazing, and it was in many ways. And I was making lots of money. But then my psychotherapeutic process, my own personal therapy process, had me having realizations about myself and about my life and about what I really wanted and about what my actual um, values were, like what mattered to me. And it got to a point where I could no longer deny that I was really being a part of this problem because really think about entertainment. I was representing supermodels. It's a very misogynistic culture, you know, very much all of it about now it's changed a lot. But keep in mind, this was 20 years ago, where, you know, there wasn't a lot of plus size, anything, it was everyone needed to be a skinny bean pole. And it just wasn't the right atmosphere. As I grew, it's like I psychologically and emotionally outgrew the entertainment business. And I knew that it was time to switch when I was way more interested in uh, the mental health of my clients than I was what Pantene deal or what movie deal I was supposed to be negotiating for them. I was getting women into drug treatment clinics and therapy because I'd had therapy, you know, so much therapy and I continue in therapy to this day. So I was like, oh, wait, you're not interested in the entertainment part. You're interested in helping people get healthy. So maybe you need to actually do that. And that inspired me. I also had a, um, a health thing that inspired me. I was diagnosed with cancer in my early 30s. And so, of course, that that, you know, that is such a wake up call. I don't care who you are, where, you know, when you're 31 or 32, you think I have forever. Like Life is always going to be like this. I, I'm going to live forever somewhere unconsciously. And then to be faced with something where you're like, wow, this might actually shorten this beautiful, amazing experience. And if it did, would I be able to say I was living my best life? And the answer was, hell no. And so that inspired me to change as well. Mm. 
You know, it's one of those things that I see quite often, Terry. I see people uh, always wanting, you know, more money, a better job, whatever that may be, just what you were talking about, like just that type A overachiever kind of thing. And what it does, mm-hmm. you see that people are constantly chasing their tail, overworking, and then left being overwhelmed and tired. Mm-hmm. What would you say to those people because you, you've gone through a transformation and a radical shift in itself by going from one to the other. What would be a piece of advice that you would like to give someone like that? You know, one of my a very dear friend, Danielle Laporte, she has this, uh, talks about goals with soul, you know, and helping you figure out, she's got the desire map, your core desired feelings. And I always said after she and I became friends maybe 15 years ago, if I had known, or 10 years ago, if I had known that I could back into my dreams or back into my goals, basing them on how I wanted to feel, I probably would have left entertainment a long time before that and it would have stopped being such a workaholic for so long. And so for anyone who is still on that path, hey, first of all, no judgment because I totally feel you, but there are things that you can do. And one thing is to really just ask yourself, is what you're doing going to make you feel the way that you want to feel in your life on a daily basis? Mm. So it's really like tapping into that heart center, isn't it, to actually say, am I being – because what what that does, like whatever it is that people chase, at the end of the day, it's really they want to feel or they feel that it's going to give them more freedom or happiness. And like you said, it's it's not always the case when you get there. Uh, but what about flipping it and doing it the other way around? What about feeling happy in in the present moment and and doing it completely the opposite? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, because uh, not really, because here's the thing. To be happy in the present moment, you have to slow down. You have to look in. You have to know who you are. You have to question what motivates your behaviors and your actions. So I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of women I've had, you know, private practice for, uh, you know, psychotherapy and coaching practice for many years, 20 years. And I, I always start by doing a very extensive intake that is all about what you eat, how you sleep, sex, everything, so that we're really getting a holistic view of what's happening with the person, what their presenting problem is, what they think the presenting problem is, or what it, they're presenting to me may not always be, obviously, what the the uh, core of the problem is. But I would say to them, what what makes you happy? What are you doing when you're feeling joyful or liberated? And I want to say, honestly, eight times out of ten, people say, I don't know. I never thought about it. So I really do believe that before we can get to, like, willing ourselves or wishing ourselves to be happy where we are, we need to actually be where we are. Mm. With this, you know, with the type A personality, at least what mine was, it was always on to the next, on to the next, and on to the next. So if you had said, well, were you happy? I mean, generally, my my personality is appreciative, joyful, happy. You know, I'm not one, even then, to think about, well, if I had done this, this would be different. Not, not a lot of regrets. Yet, being focused so much on the future limited my capacity 
to really experience present moment consciousness, to really be here now. And so the cancer diagnosis really inspired me to slow down. Just, I mean, my whole, you know, changed Mm -hmm. from that experience in the way of being present. Stop wishing your life away because it might actually happen. Stop thinking that tomorrow you'll be happier when I lose 10 pounds or when I have that job or when I represent whoever the hell it is. That it is about finding the happiness now, but I think before we can do that, we have to slow down enough to be present to the now. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I'm resonating with what you're saying because I catch myself quite often being in the future rather than being the present. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's it's yeah. one of those things that it takes practice. I'm not going to say it's easy because it's it's been, uh, I mm-hmm. think, that anyone in business, uh, whether it's an entrepreneur or a coach or whatever that may be, you're constantly looking at um, what next to keep moving mm-hmm. forward. Mm. Exactly. So, Terry, I'd love to unpack a little bit about you've got Boundary Boot Camp, which I'm really curious about, and I'm sure our listeners uh, would love to know a little bit more about that too, and Real Love Rev- Revolution. Would you like to unpack mm-hmm. those for us a little bit, please? Sure. I mean, the next one coming up, because it's not coming up till September of next year, is Boundary Boot Camp. And these are actually um, these are two signature products. And their virtual experiences. I've had women from 24 countries participating. So Boundary Bootcamp is an eight-week experience. Real Love Revolution is a an 11-week, a 12-week experience. And so with Boundary Bootcamp, how that happened, why I made it, was you know 20 years in the trenches with these Type A baller women, who from the outside. Really, people look and they're like, wow, man, she has it together. Like, she has her stuff together. But when they were coming into my tribe and into my realm, they were feeling unsatisfied. They were feeling um, not joyful. They didn't feel physically well. So there was like this disconnect between what they were presenting. And what I found is that there was a particular type of codependency that really... Um, that these women, my people, struggled with. And I had to actually make up another name for it because codependency itself, which when you think of it, if you're old enough, you think about Melody Beatty, 1987, Codependent No More, um, which really was all about being, being an enabler for addicts a lot of time. That was not what my people were doing and that was not what I did. The, the high-functioning codependency, which is what I renamed what the illness my people have, is basically the same as codependency at the core because we're basically trying to control things, outcomes for other people, um, bad decisions for other people. But we're so capable that your life doesn't look unmanageable even if it is inside. Does that resonate? Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I could tell. I could tell. I saw your website. I was like, wow, this woman has done a lot <laughs> now, and, you and, know, and is doing a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's it's interesting that we're talking about codependency because I um, just the other day, I'm, I've been studying astrology for the last three 
and a bit years and we were having our Christmas drink and we were talking about codependency and uh, one of the ladies was saying that she um, had realized that she's very much codependent on lots of things and she was going to a 12-step program mm-hmm. and I said curiously I said what what do they actually do in a 12-step program? And she was only just starting. But we were just talking about that, you know, what you focus on grows. And Mm -hmm. if you keep focusing on the codependency and keep labeling yourself as I am codependent on blah, 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 Mm -hmm. relationship, whatever that may be, um, how does that impact the individual? Uh, Is that actually keeping the individual stuck in the problem or is it actually going to help them resolve the problem? What do you think? Well, I would liken it to the same way that a cancer diagnosis can either be a wake-up call to change your life Mm. or become your total identity. So for me, cancer was just a wake-up. A lot of people don't even know that I'm a cancer survivor because honestly, it's integrated into the fabric and the, you know, my, my life, into the actual visual of my life. So it doesn't it doesn't have that standout experience. I'm not traumatized by that experience anymore. I'm grateful that it gave me the fear and the impetus to change my life, to heed the warning of that. Mm. You know, it it taught me so much about myself, but I'm so much, that's just one small part of who I am. So I do believe that there are some people that whatever their diagnosis is, that's like freak flag that they want to fly or that that's their their flag of identification even if we took the judgment out of it right Mm. where they're like and i am that's fine you know but the truth is a lot of times if you are so focused on getting the label right or making sure people know that you're this or you're that i feel like that might be a bit of staying in the problem the real the real question is if you use the information that, okay, I now really get that I am interacting with people in my life, in my relation, in a codependent way, why do I not want to do that? Oh, I don't want to do that because it sucks for me, because it's exhausting, because it's only lose-lose, because you actually can only control yourself. It's all this illusion if I work hard enough, if I work fast enough, if I do this enough, then my, you know, teenage kid who's messing up won't mess up or, you know, if I do their homework for them, then they won't fail out of high school and everything will be okay. Well, no, obviously that's not accurate, but that would be a codependent parenting way of functioning. And when you think about codependency, what is it really about? It's like we feel compelled, and trust me, I'm a recovering codependent hardcore, so I get it, and no judge at all. But it's basically keeping ourselves in the middle of everything, inserting ourselves into everything. A friend tells you, oh, you know, I don't know, I'm thinking about moving to Boston. And you're like, oh my God, I have a friend in Boston, I should hook you up with them, or I don't think you should move to Boston, I lived there years ago. And I, Do you know that Boston has the crime rate, you know what I mean? Yes, that like sounds now, like me. <laughs> oh, well, please stop. <laughs> but now but now, what do we do? What happens is it's like a power dynamic that it's it's like we will take on like, oh, you have a problem or a situation, not even a problem. And I'm going to add value, whether you've asked for it or not, whether it adds value or not. But here's me 
talking while you just told me an important life thing. But instead of me saying, tell me more. And mm. just letting the person talk, I feel the need to bring the attention to me. To be like, look, I'm still important. Look, I'm adding value. Look, I'm utilitarian. If you stick with me, you know, I, I have all these, there's all these benefits. And of course, all that is super unconscious. And there's many reasons why we become codependents and high-functioning codependents, whether it's perfectionism, whether it's coming from an authoritative family system or a chaotic family system, whether you were parentified as a child where you became the child. I mean, that situation makes total sense that you would grow up to have most of your focus, quote-unquote, supposedly on the other people. But when we really look at what it is, it isn't that. Because to have the focus on the other people, we have to tolerate our own feelings of allowing them to make their own decisions, of being more interested in what they think about moving to Boston than what we think about them moving to Boston. Mm. So Terry, would it be fair to say that, because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking like, we must all have some sort of codependency. Yeah, because it's not as you're saying. Because I'm, th I'm thinking like from an acceptance point of view, from uh, uh, being valued or connection point of view. I mean, I can see this play out as as you're speaking. I can see this play out in many areas uh, for most of us. Of course, but but let's also talk about why, mm. so that we have a deeper understanding. As women, in most cultures, right? But definitely the U.S. We are, this is basically the way that we are trained. We are raised to be the connectors, to be the bridgers. We're the assuagers of feelings, right? We are the lovers, the caregivers, the ones who will make it better, the moms. So it is even, I think it's even more complicated and a slippery slope when we feel identified with those roles and we love those roles. I'm a mother, a sister, a daughter, a, a friend, I mean, a wife. It's like I have all of these roles where every single one of them, I consider my ability to nurture and have compassion and empathy and hold space for someone else's healing to be like my superpower, you know. And there has to be the place where you see where it goes over the edge. And this, in, in Boundary Boot Camp, I teach women to really identify what their side of the street is and what is someone else's side of the street in the way of like, what is a healthy interaction? And it isn't to say that we can never give someone advice. We just don't want to auto-advice or auto-criticize because then you're not listening. You're not deepening your relationship with that person. I find that when it's very dysfunctional, and I know many people like this, they are so incredibly um, identified, married to their opinions. Right? I had dinner with someone the other the other day, and everything she said, she was like, "I would never do that. I always do that. No, that is ridiculous. That like everything, everything was in this position of right or wrong." And she was a terrible listener, of course, which I know her, so I knew she would be. But And I didn't care because I was sitting next to my husband, who's a great listener, so I was mm -hmm. just mainly talking to him. 
but it's like listening, athletically listening is a skill and it requires you to be secure enough in who you are that why, why you got to put your two cents in everywhere? Why? It's a way to make yourself feel important, but it is not a way to deepen intimacy. If someone comes to me and asks me for advice, I always say, well, before I weigh in, I want to know what you think. What have you come to? They start telling me, and I say, okay, but can you say more about that? What was the feel like? And I'm not just saying that because I'm a therapist, right? All right, maybe I know how to do it better because I'm a therapist, but there's something about not even taking the bait because I would have friends who would always come to me for advice and then never take the advice. Mm, yep. And you're like, hey, dude, uh, this is my prana. This is my life force energy, too. And that's the difference between someone actually dumping, you becoming a receptacle for someone's dysfunction or negativity, and you being a good listener. With friends like that, if they're in a situation, let's say an abusive relationship or their spouse is an alcoholic, and they want to tell me, you're not going to believe what he did. I'm like, oh, yeah, I believed you the first 12 times you told me. Like, I don't want to hear the story again, you know? Mm. What is mind-blowing is that you're still shocked. You've been doing this for 10 years. Why are you surprised? Why is this a new injury? Oh, my God, please get into Al-Anon. But do you understand? Like, there's a, for me, I draw a boundary and say, hey, I'm an empath. This is very stressful for me. We've had this same conversation over many, many, many hours. And when and if you want to actually change it, I am so here for you to strategize that and brainstorm it, no prob. I just can't. Listen, now, some people may say that's me being mean or judging. It's not. It's me protecting my energy because there is a codependent dance. of. It's like being a groundhog day mm, with true. people who come to you for the same crap and never change it. And then you're then you become resentful. And I'm like, I don't want to resent you because your life is a you know runaway train. It's your life. You know, I'm here if you want to change it. So there's many, many aspects bringing it back to the codependency thing of codependency that we've basically just been taught and has been ingrained in us throughout our lives. But that doesn't mean that you can't change it. And I really think the most important reframe to give the motivation to change it is to understand that being codependent having bad boundaries is really a block to intimacy, not a road to intimacy. And I think that there's a lot of misconception about, well, if I do everything for you, then you love me. If I can never say no to you because I love you that much, right? There's all of these um, misperceptions, all of these myths about love and how boundaries, if you draw boundaries, it means you're a bitch. It means you're mean, you have to do it confrontationally, it means you have to have a fight, and none of that is true. And I teach women all over the world to draw boundaries with ease and grace and when appropriate, love. It's not always appropriate if it's your boss, right? True. <laughs> but when appropriate, love. So I'm really curious because I, I was thinking uh, what you were saying about having uh, boundaries um, and having whether, you know, where you'd like to label them good or bad boundaries um, as a way it's a block to intimacy. 
So mm-hmm. I'd like to unpack that a little bit because I feel that we have, and I know just through some of my friends, you know, going over, you know, uh, having a dinner together and having conversations that, you know, they do so much for family, uh, but not so much for themselves. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then out comes a conversation about how, um, connected are they to their partners? Uh, and quite often you'll find, and it depends on their age group, of course, but it is also, it's also about them showing love in a way of doing all these things like they're washing, they're ironing, they're cooking, but there's no intimacy. And that's a common mm-hmm. thing. So what are your thoughts around that? Well, I think that, you know, let's first establish that when we talk about, I don't talk about good or bad boundaries myself. I talk about like functional, healthy boundaries and dysfunctional or unhealthy boundaries. And they come in all shapes and sizes. So we have the, I think there's like the perception that, you know, if you have bad boundaries, you're like a pushover. You're like the peacekeeper, you know, you're like the doormat. And that's not really true because weak boundaries could also be someone who presents as the loner, right? So they keep themselves up in their ivory tower because they don't know how to end relationships. They don't know how to end conversations. They feel bad. So they just, or or intimacy, they have like um, attachment issues. So intimacy, they want it. And then it feels incredibly overwhelming and suffocating for them. So when I talk about boundaries, anyway, conversation, if we're talking about weak boundaries, I'm simply talking about disordered boundaries. And they're disordered if they're getting in the way of you getting what you want in your life yep. or of you deepening your relationships or of you being successful in your job or whatever your heart's desire may be. So back to the question at hand, because you said about the mm. re- like loving people with acts of service, which is what you're talking about. If we would go to the um, five love languages, mm. which I have to say, it's just that book just holds up. It is so brilliant that it's something that if anyone listening I mean, it's been out for 20-something years probably. But it's so interesting to know your own love language. So what you described, someone cleaning, cooking, and doing and taking care, that is that is acts of service. But what is what I find with heterosexual couples is that men feel loved you many times by acts of service. So exactly as you described, or um, if they asked you to pick up their dry cleaning and you forgot. It might actually kind of hurt their feelings, like like you weren't thinking about them. Where women, it's much more common that it's words of affirmation, um, touch, and quality time. So it's good to know what your lo- what your partner's love language is and what your own love language is, which you can literally go online and just like take a test for free. Um, so moving into what do you do about the intimacy? when you are doing all these other things. Well, I would ask if it was one of your friends, I would try to guide them to or help them understand as a therapist, what is their secondary gain, their own secondary gain for keeping the relationship structured the way that it is. So quickly, let's talk about what secondary gain is. It may sound obvious, but I'll I'll tell you just in case someone listening doesn't know. So, Primary gain is obvious. We go to the gym to, you know, to to work out so that we'll be physically well. Secondary gain is the unobvious things that we get out of staying stuck. 
So I had a client who had a weight problem. So she was uh, about 110 pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. She said she'd done everything, tried everything. She would lose, you know, 50 pounds, then gain it back, lose it, whatever. And I, as, as much as it may sound like a mean thing, sort of to be like, so what are you getting out of staying padded this way, basically? What we got to in our time together was that she gained the weight because the anniversary dates are very important, like when something may happen. So she gained the weight after she had been sexually assaulted when she was 13. She was a very beautiful woman. She was very beautiful. And by the time I met her, she was already in her late 50s, still gorgeous face, but had been dealing with this obesity all of her life. And now she was having all these other health problems along with it. So and she was happily married, interestingly. But she was unhappy because she felt like a prisoner in her body. So we actually got to the the unconscious, like like what was her secondary gain of staying big is that it it made her feel safe mm. from the world, from danger, from other men, right? She was lucky enough and it was in the stars that she met her husband in college, but she still had all this trepidation about other men because she had been assaulted. So when we got to that point, and then we were able to actually unpack what happened, up until that point, she had been a client for like six months and had not told me about the assault. So this was sort of interesting that we backed our way into it by trying to understand the secondary gain because her presenting problem, her biggest pain point was being obese. And she has, she lost 102 pounds and she's kept it off and that was four years ago and she's feels great and she can walk and she and her husband are now traveling and it's just amazing but anyway so did did i clearly explain secondary gain do you want another example oh that would be great okay so the definition itself is like the unobvious gain of what you get by staying stuck so you say to yourself i'm going to stop drinking three glasses of wine a night i'm going to stop doing that i'm going to only drink on the weekends and then you fail by tuesday you, you drink your three big glasses of wine. What is the secondary gain? Well, numbing your feelings, avoiding what you, what you use this um, mood-altering activity, which is what drinking or eating or sexing or de deading, gambling, there's, there's all these things that, we, that affect the same part of the brain, that you're, the secondary gain is to not feel whatever it is that you don't want to feel, to not deal with. So the questions that listeners can ask themselves to identify their own secondary gain in any situation where they feel stuck is you can ask, what do I get to not feel, not face, or not experience by staying stuck here? So when, you, when people say in a job they hate, you know, they don't make the move, even though they hate it, they complain. So their secondary gain is what? Not risking failing, right? Mm -hmm. Not stepping out of their comfort zone. That's a gain. So is that more clear? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the reason I was asking uh, a little bit more clarity, it was I was wondering whether it was similar to uh, an inner critic uh, because from my understanding, an inner critic is there to keep you safe and protect you. And it's m most of the time from my understanding, that is, most of the time it's um, going back to that, what, like you're talking about, the pain point or the root cause yep. um, as to why it no longer serves you today, but why it's ta it shows up all the time. Yes, and I, you're, I agree with you 
with the inner critic thing where that's like the fear mind or the ego mind or I call it your mafia mind, whatever you want to call it, that supposedly that you know is is trying to protect you, trying to keep you safe. And in reality, it's basically keeping your life small. This is very similar, but it requires this to our desire to to look in and to decode why we're stuck. It's like, I feel that staying stuck, we get very comfortable. I used to always say this to my clients. It's like you're this complaining about like losing the 10 pounds or wanting to get out of the job, but not taking the steps that you know you need to get out of the job. It's like this job you hate and you bitching about it is like this little whoopee, like a little blankie. And like you, you pull it up around you and you say, it's still fine. It's still fine. But it has like, you know, SOS pads and like glass shards in it. And it's got holes and it's not keeping you warm and it's filthy dirty. Mm -hmm. Like it's not doing for you what maybe it was a nice little blankie when you were a kid. And that's when that defense mechanism was actually adaptive. Right. And now you grow up and it becomes maladaptive because lions and bi- tigers and bears are not chasing us in real life now. It's just the child within us that is still feels threatened to confront someone, to make someone mad, to disappoint someone. And all of that is like child, a lot of that is like child within stuff. Right. So that that would be also very similar to inner child work? Yeah. 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 It, it like Like John Bradshaw's work. He wrote Homecoming a thousand years ago, which still, again, another book that just stands up. It's amazing. Um, and he had all those PBS specials where he's the person actually in the 80s, I think, that I learned about the child within um, and how to how to even identify that. And before I became a psychotherapist, actually, it must have been the 90s because before I was a therapist, I was like, that's such bull crap. Like, child within, what are you talking about? And then I became a therapist. And everything changed. I was like, oh, my God, it's true. It is real. I see it in the trenches every day over and over that if I can help the client identify the earlier injury or perpetrator zero, as I like to call it, right, that first experience of someone criticizing your body that basically kicked off a lifelong eating disorder or whatever it is, and if we can heal that person at that moment in time. And that's basically speaking to the seven-year-old or whatever. And then then inspire the client to treat themselves with that kindness that the kid in them at seven didn't get. Or like identifying different traumatic or dramatic experiences where we sort of got stuck throughout our lives. And if we can connect the dots back to that injury, you can be liberated from like dysfunctional patterns in your current life by doing that. Because another thing I hated the idea of doing before I was a therapist was like going back. I was like, whatever, people, that was four decades ago. Why do we got to go talk about that now? Why is third grade? Why do we care? And then I became a therapist and I was like, oh, we, and, and I would say to my clients, actually, I don't care about third grade unless something that happened in third grade is still blocking you from getting what you want in your life today. Oh, then I care a lot, you know? So it isn't caring about everything. It's caring about the things that are significant and could be the key. We need to open that door to liberate the person to go on to do whatever it is. 
Mm, I like the way that you just explained that. It's not really because I find that sometimes just from, you know, other um, uh, guests we've had on the show and, and uh, it's really sometimes unpacking the problem, getting into the problem, but you're actually just opening that doorway. I've got a picture of Pandora's box where all yeah. of, you're actually releasing, uh, not deep diving into the problem, but actually releasing, acknowledging it, but letting it go. Yes. Yes. And the honoring it, it's really honoring you at that age because a kid who learned to shut up because it was unsafe to do something else a kid who learned to focus on dysfunctional parents needs and not their own and the parents were happy to have them do that cooking dinner doing whatever at the age of nine that behavior is like life and death when you're seven so we need to really like love up that kid within ourselves at those ages and let her play if she didn't have a chance to, right? Let her tell the story of what happened without making it okay. Because people, it's so hard for, especially women who are over-functioners and over-givers and over-doers and successful, they're very hard on themselves. And it's very easy to say, listen, I understand why. My mother did what she did. She had a terrible childhood, la, la, la. And I go, yeah, okay, well, great. But you know who doesn't care that she had a terrible childhood? The seven-year-old you. Doesn't give a crap. She wants someone to care about her story, honor her experience, witness her experience. No excuses. It is not okay. What many of us experienced in our childhood, and it, and it happened anyway. But there has to be a moment of like, you know what, little kid? You know what, seven-year-old? You know what, 10-year-old? I see you. I feel you. That must have been terrible. I'm so, like, let me hug you. Let me treat you with kindness and tenderness. And as much as probably 20 years ago, that would have sounded weird to me. Having been in the trenches for 20 years, trust me, it is the one of the most important things is to honor the childhood wounds that you had without wallowing there. And there really is a difference between the two of those things. Mm. You know, we can't just wish it away. You know what I'm saying? Because it doesn't. What would Freud would talk about human beings and our feelings are like the smoke coming out of like a pot belly stove, right? Like right up the flu. Mm. Well, what happens if we stuff the flu with a whole bunch of crap and paper and stuff? Is that going to get rid of the smoke? Uh, no. <laughs> That's the same thing with feelings, right? So if we go, well, frigate, it was four decades ago. That's like dumb, you know? It's fine. Well, you can say that, and that's you stuffing a bunch of shit down your flu. And those emotions, those feelings that weren't honored, that are still activated, are going to start to come out sideways in your life. They come out weirdly in relationships, and you won't even know why. You'll be like, I just like started bawling my eyes out. I have no idea what happened. Like, or I got totally enraged and I don't know why. Well, I promise you the answers are in the past most of the time. And that we can't just deny them away or shove them under the rug away because they have a life of their own, their energy. They need to be honored and released is my two cents on that. Mm, I love it. And it remind me, uh, one of my teachers uh, many moons ago, I remember um, – uh, having a conversation with him and talking about my 
inner child because we were doing some inner child work and um, I was coming up with all these excuses and he said to me, have you ever heard of spiritual bypass because that's what you're doing right now. <laughs> so it resonated with me extremely. It's That's so good, the spiritual bypass. There's also another thing that I talk about that is similar to that, but it's hyper positivity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is also a spiritual bypass. You're like, it's fine. Everything happens for a reason. You're like, okay, maybe once you processed it, you can say that, but let's not just skip right to this terrible thing happened, but I'm sure it happened for a reason. You definitely have feelings. That, that's me. That's that's 100% me, as you say. <laughs> I'm that person. I've always got no one in their right mind would go out of their way to hurt anyone. There's got to be a reason, and I'll always find an excuse. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah. You know what's interesting though? No, let's just stay with that because it's actually interesting. <laughs> I'm sure the people listening are yes. like, oh my God, me too, right? Yeah. Here's the thing. What I care about is what you experienced. So let's get away from the blame. Not even not asking why, you know? I mean, listen, if it's an intimate relationship, of course, we'll have to talk about that. We need context. But in life, if someone does something really shitty to you or crappy or betrays you, your focus has got to be on your side of the street, allowing yourself to feel betrayed, allowing yourself to be in pain. You may never understand why someone else, right? We can assume it's because they're in a dark place or they're far from the light or they're far from God, depending on what you believe in, or they're mentally unwell or they're not healthy. I don't know. But what really matters is you not minimizing the impact that their choice had on you and that you take care of yourself in the aftermath of whatever the thing is. And we, this again goes back to the whole thing about our opinion on everything. Mm. where we need to be like, well, they did that because of the, you don't know why they did it and that's okay. One of my teachers who... Um, passed away. His name was David Simon and he was Deepak Chopra's, their partners, both of my teachers, but mm -hmm. they were partners in the Chopra Center for 20 years and David died about five years ago. But he was such an impactful, just amazing, just a brilliant teacher, such a beautiful human. And he had this whole talk that he would give about how we walk around life every second of the day, either saying yum or saying yuck. I love just that. yum, yuck, just yum, yuck. You're on the subway. I don't like her boots. Yuck. Oh, I like her coat. Yum. Right. All day long. And it's this way of getting out of our own lives. And Deepak basically taught me or would say that your own highest evolution comes when you're able to become the observer of yourself and others simply with curiosity. Oh, I love that. Me too, so much. <laughs> I love that. That's really because in that way, by being the observer of whatever's taking shape, you're actually not being in a place of judgment. Exactly. Yeah. But you're also gathering just vital data about yourself. When I look at myself without judgment after I've had an overreaction to something, I go, that is interesting. What was going on? that I got so hot in that moment with that person. I was so snippy. Huh, let me see. Oh, I remember 
what happened, I had that phone call an hour before and I didn't let, you know, you start to connect the dots Mm. to your own behavior. Like, oh, maybe I need to have a conversation with Betty Lou because I didn't like the way we ended that conversation. And oh my gosh, I just displaced that aggression on my husband. So I'm going to apologize to him and then I'm going to go pick up my phone and call Betty Lou back. Mm. Yeah. Because you're seeing it from a different perspective, aren't you? It's like that perceptual position. It depends on uh, whose, uh, you know, the, the three sides of the story. It depends on whose side of the story you stand on to actually what you see, hear, and feel. Oh, with that is so true. That mm. is so true. Yeah. So, Terry, uh, as we start wrapping up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. What would be that one word for you? Uh, transformative. Absolutely. It would be transformative. And the other thing that we love to do is ask our woman of inspiration to pick three shiny golden nuggets uh, for our listeners. Mm. So what would be those three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to leave for our listeners today? Oh, I love it. So I'm going to leave them with something I call the three cues tool to identify repeating realities. So this is something where if you're in a situation and you feel like you're here a lot, whether it's you have conflict with people at work, whether you're continually attracting unavailable men into your life, this is the three cues tool that you can use. So how you do it is when you're in that situation, let's say with the unavailable boyfriend or the unavailable guy, you ask yourself, who does this person remind me of? Where have I felt like this before? And why is this behavioral interaction, this behavioral dance, why is it familiar to me? And you will probably come up with something because usually this means that we've had this experience before. Uh, Freud would call it, you know, transference, right? Or repetition compulsion within family systems. But we just call it repeating realities. And all we care about are the realities that you don't want to repeat, but they keep repeating, right? Whether it's around money. So you can use that tool. And I'll make sure that you have everything that you need for that. Um, you can use that tool really in any situation. So that's number one. Well, is that, that what you meant by Oh, nuggets? yes, that's perfect. Oh, <laughs> I was like, wait, am I doing it wrong? <laughs> no, this is um, awesome. I'm writing it all down. Okay, great. Well, you don't have to because I'll have my assistant send it to you. Okay. Um, the second one is basically for if if you want to understand more about your own love story, right? How you became the way you are in love. There may be things that are eluding you in life, whether it is a deep, lasting, healthy, you know, relationship, or whether it's more satisfaction in your own relationship. So I'm going to give you basically some help on how to uncover your personal downloaded love blueprint. So there's a couple of questions, which I'll just say them quickly. I'll have them, you know, available on your site for people to just click on. Um, the first thing is you ask, how, how was your parents' marriage? If you were raised by two people, how, how was it? Who had the power? How did they problem solve? So we start to look at what were the early, um, influences that started laying down this blueprint around what love and or marriage looks like and or should look like. Um, what was the culture that you come from. Many people listening to this podcast will be from cultures that are very dominantly male and that there's an expectation 
that you will be subservient or whatever that may be, that, that greater culture profoundly impacts your love blueprint and the experiences that you have in life. So we look at the culture and the family culture. There's always a family culture too. In my home, I had three older sisters and my mother. My parents got divorced when I was 13. And my mother taught me that men were people to be managed. Okay, well, that doesn't sound great. Who wants to get married and manage somebody? I barely manage myself, you know. But I saw this, that this is what it was. It wasn't about a heart connection. It wasn't about being madly, deeply in love. It was about placating. It just seemed so gross. I never wanted to get married. You know, I was like, ew, so much work. But I'm not the only person who has that story because every single person listening to this had a family culture around love, marriage, romance. Is it, you know, do we, are, are we male bashers, right? Like we were in my family a little bit. I mean, not anymore, but we were. Where it was like jokes about men and how they don't get it. And, you know, the women are, the, like that impacts your love blueprint. Um, so anyway, the, the, that's another tip. Then you have the answers to those questions. Your love blueprint is like a blueprint, like an architectural blueprint for a house. Many times that someone else designed like centuries ago. And if it goes unexamined or unquestioned, you just hand it down from generation to generation. Like, oh, this is the way it is, in quotes. But what I learned in my own life was that simply because that's the way it was for my parents did not mean that that was the way it had to be for me. I mean, it took years of therapy, of course, to get to that and uncover my own blueprint and all of that. But it really creates so much hope. And it's like a GPS of where someone needs to put their attention because you have the power to actually create a new blueprint that's aligned with what you want, not with just the way you thought it was. Make sense? No, absolutely. I've got goosebumps. I'm right resonating on. with what you're saying. I love it. All right. And then the, the last one I was going to talk about just quickly was how to start a, a meditate, like a dedicated meditation practice. So, and I think we're also gifting you a meditation, aren't we? Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so very much, Terry. You're spoiling us. I love it. I love to overgive. Speaking of which, no, I'm kidding. Um, so how can you start a meditation practice? Well, one is reframe it in your mind. I promise you, if you have a butt and if you have a couch, you are a meditator, my friend. <laughs> so whatever preconceived limiting belief you have that you need to be like Deepak Chopra or go to India, you don't. And it doesn't have to be 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. And it doesn't have to be two hours a day. Start super simply. I'll ask you to start with one minute on your phone or an egg timer in the morning. You can very simply repeat a universal mantra. So hum. So that's S-O-H-U-M. Why do we want a mantra? Why do we care? Mantra is a mind vehicle so that you're not thinking about laundry or your coffee or whatever you'd be thinking about. It helps us stay focused on the words or on the breath as opposed to just sitting there for one minute thinking. And I just will ask you to do this for 21 days and each day simply add a That's it. And then in the end, see what shifts in your life. In my own life, when I got a dedicated practice, I gained about two seconds of response time in every situation that I was in. 
So instead of verbally punching people in the nose, because I was a bit of a hot Aries and I could do that, mm-hmm. I would, I had like the, the choice to not. Sometimes I still did because I really wanted to, but I didn't do it when I didn't want to. I didn't have to apologize as much and I didn't have as many regrets about, oh, I was like bitchy when I didn't need to be. I just gained this this space. So I really, anyone who works with me, every one of my groups, it's one of the main, um, you know, it, it really is a pillar of the work that I do in the world is a dedicated practice. Oh, I love it. And I think that once again, having some sort of practice uh, and from my understanding, doing it for 21 days is is what creates that neural pathways. Uh, and that can be hard in itself, just that twenty one, that first 21 days, because I use that too. And I think that sometimes I'll say, when you get to day 16 and then you forget day 17, you have to start all mm-hmm. over again because it's going to be 21 consecutive days. Is, it, is that yep. what you do too? No, I, no I, I'm, very, I'm very non-punitive. My feeling is... If you got to day 16 and you skipped a day, mm. the next day, just do day 17. Because okay. let's set ourselves up mm. right? instead of setting ourselves up to fail. And again, it, it's something that you get to do, not that you have to do. And mm. I, another thing, the last thing I'll say about this is that I promise you, if I said to you, oh, hey, at the end of the 21 days, when you get up to 21 minutes, sitting in stillness and silence, doing a, you know, you're so hum mantra silently in your mind, I'm going to give you $5 million in cash. I wonder if you think you could do 21 days. Hmm. Well, well, if your money is driver at, uh, is a drive for you, absolutely. I think people could do 21 days. You're right. Oh, I do almost anything for twenty-one days for five million bucks in cash. Come on now. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, like, I know it's all what about you're saying. Your intention, right? Yeah. It's all about um, setting yourself up to succeed. If you really go in and go, "Hey, failure is not an option," because that's how important I think it is. What if doing it for twenty-one days would cure someone you loved of being ill? Mm. Yeah, you would never forget day sixteen. That's right. And I think, uh, you know, I that resonates with me and I like it. It's so much softer. I think from a – because I'm right into all the brain-based coaching stuff and from mm-hmm. a neuroscience point of view, they they actually say that it takes 21 consecutive days. But mm-hmm. it, it's take away the brain-based. I love this approach because it doesn't, it doesn't set you up for failure. Uh, if you think, yep. oh, if I forget a day, which can happen, I'll just continue. Yep. Yeah, so it's a much exactly. so- softer approach. Yes. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of your work. I love what you're doing. It really has been an honor and a privilege. I just wanted to say that before we got off. (laughs) Oh, Terry, you're gorgeous. And, you know, talk about overgiving. I have got pages worth of stuff. I can't thank you enough, Terry. What would be the best place for our listeners to find you? Because I'm sure everyone is going to reach out. um, And definitely I'm going to look into the Boundaries Boot Camp and also the Real Love Revolution. You said it's 12 weeks. When does that start? for 2019 2019 that is not until september september i mean no no i'm sorry no no it's not not september hold on no 2000 not 2019 we're we're now looking into 2020 because i already had it in 2019 so it started february in 2019 so you missed it this year this oh okay because we're in 2018 so next year is 2019 so are you saying it starts in february next year 
Yeah, it does. Okay, awesome. So we'll have all so that down. February. Yeah, February. Yep, and we've, we've got a whole bunch of stuff happening. So um, what I will do is I'll give you, I'll tell people where to find me. So on um, Facebook, I would love all of the women, if they want more free content, I do a free weekly Q&A on Wednesdays called Wednesday Wisdom. Um, you can go to Terry Cole um, and you'll see LCSW. That's my business page. And then I have a free Real Love Revolution group that is private only for women. So you're welcome to look for that. I would love to have you in there. It's super fun. There's about 15,000 women from around mm. the world. So it's a very supportive, um, but it's also a very focused group. So we're actually doing something. It's really not a place that people can just post and bitch about life. It's really about each week we're learning skills and tools to really up-level the quality of love, life, boundaries, whatever it is that you're seeking, we're up-leveling your ability to do that. Um, you can go to terrycole.com and that is where all of my stuff lives. I actually have a very big YouTube channel. Each week I do a YouTube video. So you can look for Real Love Revolution or terrycole.com. You'll do you'll, Terry Cole on uh, YouTube, you'll find me. And also on Insta, Terry Cole and everything else. I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere. Um, and the, I have a weekly podcast as well. Oh my God, just so many things. Oh, wow. <laughs> What's your weekly podcast? Um, we just changed the name to The Terry Cole Show. It has been called, though, for like the past five years or four years, um, Hello Freedom with Terry Cole. Beautiful. So we'll have that all in the show notes. Terry, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been such an honor, and I have learned so much from you today, and I'm sure our listeners have too, and we'll reach out. You're just, oh, you're just divine. Thank you so much. Oh, Catherine, thank you too. Let's do it again, and I'll have you on my show. Oh, I'd love that. That would be awesome. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed the show as it is my mission to reach out and inspire as many individuals like you. And one of the best ways to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes. It's easy and it only takes about 10 seconds. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an ebook to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at Catherine Plano. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Until next week, please take care of yourself.